Esther chapter 4 is where we are this evening, continuing our story of providence in Esther. Now, last week was Haman's gambit, this week's Esther's gamble. That was intentional, a little play on words there. Before we dig into the text, I want to remind you about the timeline of our story. Again, I, I, gave, I had those charts. There's still some back there if you want a timeline chart uh, of, es- of the story of Esther and the different things that happened. By the time Haman has made his request, so he has the year of casting a pure, right? The casting of lots. We looked at that last week. By the time Haman makes his request and the king issues the edict, Esther had been queen for almost a decade. It doesn't feel like that in the story, right? In the story, it just sort of glosses over it because it just has in the third year and then in the twelfth year and then in the thirteenth year. So it, it doesn't seem like that in the text. And a lot of Bible stories are this way that just cover swaths of time in one or two verses. What had Esther been doing all this time? We don't know. We're not told. It's ultimately not relevant, of course, to the story that is being told. I think it is a little relevant. What was her relationship with the king? What was her duties? What was she like? Did she have any responsibilities? The the author of Esther is not concerned with any of that. But it is interesting to think about, and it will be relevant for the thing that we're going to talk about tonight. But for the origin of the Feast of Purim, obviously that decade is of less importance, right? That, That Feast of Purim that is being inaugurated towards the end of the book, which is what the book is about. But I think in this, too, is a lesson of God's providence. We think about the providence of God in Esther, and we're going to read the most famous verse tonight, Esther 4.14. But God's actions orchestrated events for years prior to becoming, quote-unquote, relevant. When Esther was actually going to be in a position to do something, that was put into motion a decade prior. We think about the providence of God on his timetable, it's years and years and years sometimes before the evidence of God's providence is apparent at all. Up until this point in the story, we have, we have again, nine years of Esther being queen. I don't necessarily think that there's anything that Mordecai's thinking or Esther's thinking, oh, I definitely need to be here for some reason. I'm just here. It just sort of happened. Here I am now, and I'm a queen, and I'm a queen for nine years. But God, of course, is working on a long timetable. What might be going on in your life that God is doing might not be for now. It might be for way later, right? And thinking about God's providence on longer timetables than we typically do, what is going on in your life right now that you can't really think, you can't really see, and maybe this is impossible, but that's going to prepare you for things that might happen 10, 20 years from now? God is able to do that, obviously, in the story of Esther. He's able to think on that time scale. The problem is we don't see it, right? We don't see on that time scale. And so the importance of being diligent to be faithful to him so that when the moment comes, which inevitably will come, we can have been shaped and prepared over a course of years to do the thing that God wants us to do, which is what we see in the story of Esther. Now, the edict is issued... Uh, it's, it's issued for like 12 months la- later, and there's some, a little bit of interesting thinking about why that was the case. Maybe it's going to take that long to spread the word throughout the empire. Maybe it's going to take that long for everybody to prepare. But the edict, of course, the king issues at Amon's behest, we're going to kill all the Jews in the 12th month. We're going to kill them all. Again, that's 11 months. This was issu- the edict is issued in the first month. And so predictably, Mordecai and the Jews, they begin to mourn. They begin to weep and wail, and they have the sackcloth and ashes, Esther 4.1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes. We see this a lot in the Old Testament. It's not as much in the New Testament. 
uh, this common form of mourning. The sackcloth was very uh, itchy and, and rough and not very comfortable. The ashes, of course, a sign of, of impending death or doom or despair. So, you know, uh, abasing ourselves, abasing themselves as an appeal to God. Very similar to fasting. We'll talk about fasting in a minute. Uh, he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. Not into the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Why is that? Probably just ostentatious appearance, right? You want the king's gate to be all nice and pretty. Can't be having mourning in the king's gate. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It's important to remember that Mordecai bears at least some responsibility for what's happening. Because ultimately Haman, we remember the story, right? Haman goes on this kick against the Jews because Mordecai refuses to bow. Moreover, Mordecai tells them that he's refusing to bow because he's a Jew. Could have done a number of different things. Could have bowed or at least could have hidden his heritage. Which he told Esther to do, right? He told Esther to hide her heritage. He didn't do that for himself. He's just like, I'm not going to bow to you. I'm a Jew. I'm not going to do that. And that is the instigating event that kicks off everything we see in Haman's actions against Israel. I wonder how much of his mourning in Mordecai's life is guilt-driven. Now, of course, the rest of the Jews, their mourning's not guilt-driven. They're just sad and lamenting. But I do wonder if Mordecai feels a little bit of guilt. Like, why did I do that? Maybe I could have done something different. The what-ifs that come in sorrow... It's ultimately impossible to say, except that Mordecai is making a loud ruckus. He's crying in the street. He's going right up to the king's gate. He's, he's not hiding it, definitely not hiding it. Verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Maybe she sends him the garments so that he can come into the king's gate, right? You can't come in with sackcloth. Here, have some clothes. You can come into the king's gate. Uh... Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her. He ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Now, there's a couple of considerations in these two verses. First, this is just about the only direct insight into Esther's decade of royalty. And really the question is, is kind of profound. How could she not know why he was lamenting? She sends to, to Mordecai, what is going on? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this? What does that tell us about her interaction with the world outside the palace? This edict has been issued. It's been given all throughout the entire kingdom. It's been given in Susa. We know in Susa they, they heard the decree because Susa was thrown into confusion at the end of the last chapter. And remember, three months have passed in this period of time since the decree. What's Esther been doing the whole time? Is she just so isolated from the world? Like she has no idea? Like maybe she just hasn't put it together. Obviously there's a bit of sheltering going on in the palace that she is not aware of the thing that's going on against the Jews. Or maybe she did know, but somehow she didn't put it together that Mordecai would be mourning over that. I just, I think we, she doesn't know. She just straight up doesn't know about this decree. And so we consider second the tension, which we've already noted, between Esther's secret identity, this makes her sound like a superhero, Esther's secret identity and Mordecai's proud declaration. Esther, you need to hide your heritage. 
But I'm going to just tell everybody. I'm going to tell everybody that I'm a Jew. And we already said that's the instigating event, right, of this persecution against the Jews. Why did some of the handmaidens tell her about Mordecai? I think there's an implication that at least some in the palace, her handmaidens, the eunuchs, they know that Mordecai is connected to Esther. They're aware of that. That's why they tell Esther, hey, this guy out here, he's, he's ranting around. They're not just going to tell her randomly. They're telling Esther that Mordecai is doing this because they know she's connected to Esther. And maybe Morde Esther is afraid that Mordecai's very public mourning is going to sort of out her as a Jew. She's been hiding it all this time. The king clearly is not aware of it up until the moment in the, the banquets. And so maybe Esther's afraid. Hey, Mordecai, you're kind of drawing a lot of attention to this. Let's tone it down a bit, right? Let's hear, hear some clothes. Be normal. Now, ultimately, that's speculation, but it is interesting to think about that tension. Verse 6. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened. Remember, Esther asks, go find out why he's doing this. Why is he mourning and wailing so loudly? Mordecai told him all that had happened, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Athak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Here we get a little more insight into Mordecai. How did he know the exact sum of money that Haman had offered? Now, maybe that's part of the public decree Although I would, I would suspect that it was not. Haman offers this almost as a bribe. Typically, you don't go around publicizing your bribes, right? You don't just go around and say, I bribed the king 10,000 gold or 10,000 talents to kill all the Jews. So how did Mordecai know the exact sum of money? He's got some connections. He also recognizes, as we noted last week, the importance of the written document versus the telling. And if you recall from last week, the importance in the written document is the word abad, the, the very similar word that is only delineated by a little particular uh, uh, apostrophe in the English. It would have been, of course, a different mark in the Hebrew between the word for destroy and the word for enslave. And Esther, when she goes and confronts the king in the banquet, specifically says, if it was just enslavement, I wouldn't have said anything, but it's destroy." And Mordecai, I think, recognizes the importance of this written document. Here, here's a copy of the decree. Take it to Esther, show her what's going on, show her what's happening, get her to do what she needs to do. Mordecai, I think, demonstrating again the wisdom and the connection that he has in the kingdom. Verse 10. Esther spoke to Thak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say... All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except to the one, uh, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. As for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So it's been a while since Esther's had an audience with the king. Again, a little bit more insight into sort of her queenly situation inside the palace. She wasn't just hanging out with the king all the time. She sort of had her own stuff going on, and, and Hazarus would only call her probably occasionally when he wanted to. Again, a very fickle king. And there are several ways to interpret Esther's response, some of which are not flattering. Before we get into the various ways to interpret this, I want to note Esther's development. In the beginning, in the first few chapters of the book, she is almost entirely passive. She's called to go in this selection process for the king. Mordecai tells her what to do. She follows, accepts his command. 
in the process, the selection process for the king. Uh, she eats the food. She accepts the cosmetics. She only does what the, uh, I can't remember that guy's name now. The head of the women, can't remember his name, in chapter one, uh, chapter two. He te- he, she only does what that guy says, right? She's, she just totally accepts whatever anybody else tells her. She's totally passive in the first part of the story. But now she is thinking for herself and questioning the counsel of others. Specifically here, Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai, that's not a great thing to do. Mordecai tells her, hey, go talk to the king. And Esther's first response is, you know, Mordecai, I think I need to inform you about some of the things that are going on. Even though we all know, only people who the king calls can go to the king. And as we noted last week, again, the contrast between Esther and Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus doesn't seem to have any development in the story at all. He's just always accepting whatever anybody else says, very passively. Esther here has demonstrated some character development, some growth, from being totally passive to having some responsibility for herself, thinking about, is this something I really want to do? Thinking about the consequences of what might happen. Now, is Esther being cowardly or cautious? That's the question. She may be, of course, remembering Vashti's fate, Uh, that's a typo there, which put her in this place in the first place, right? In the first place, in the first chapter, Vashti doesn't do what the king wants, and she is cast aside by Hazarus because she doesn't do what the king wants. And so maybe Esther is thinking about that. Hey, you know what? The last queen was very presumptuous. Maybe I shouldn't do that, Mordecai. You know, that's what happened to Vashti. I, I probably shouldn't act that way. And the king, of course, has been at various times presented as fickle, impulsive, prone to overreaction in a variety of ways, and so maybe Esther's right to be cautious. Now, the less gracious interpretation of this is that she's a coward, right? She doesn't want to do it. I don't think that's borne out in the story because of what we've been talking about, her character growth and development, thinking about things before she acts, trying to be wise, as we've seen Mordecai has been wise throughout the story, except for that one slip-up, but having some thought for herself. And so Esther approaching the king is the first climax of the story. There are two climaxes. Well, there's really three climaxes. Uh, One is this, Esther approaching the king. The second is the banquets, right? And then the third is the actual day of the decree when all this is taken out. And then there's the pitched battle. It's sort of glossed over at the end. This is the first major expression of God's providence in the book. Esther 4, 12 through 14, which Esther 4, 14 is easily the most famous verse in the whole book, probably the most important. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that yourself in, uh, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the verse, of course, that most implies the presence of God in the story. Again, God not explicitly mentioned, but that question, that rhetorical question, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, there's a clearly implied answer. He's asking the question sort of rhetorically, but he's implying that, yes, you have come into the kingdom for this moment. Nine years you've been in the kingdom, you've been in the palace, you've been queen, and you've probably enjoyed a pretty good life. Now's why you're there. You're there for this moment. Now, whereas in the past, Esther might have accepted Mordecai's counsel just straight up without discussion, now Mordecai has to justify his position. 
And I would note, this is what we want of all of our children, right? We want this. We want growth. My kids, at the beginning, it's kind of, you know, they're not thinking about things in a deeper level. Similarly to Esther, Esther's not really thinking about things on a deeper level at the beginning of the story. She's grown. She's matured. That's what we want. We want maturity. We want growth. And so Mordecai has to make an argument. Threefold designed to combat the various ways of interpreting Esther's uh, hesitation. So we think about Esther's hesitation. Is she a coward? Is she afraid? Maybe she thinks, I'm in the palace. I'll be fine. Rest of the Jews, they're not going to be fine. But I'll be fine. And maybe she's sort of forgotten that she is part of this larger thing. And so we see that in Mordecai's argument. First, based in her personal identity, you're not going to escape, Esther. Now, again, Mordecai may be assuming some things about Esther that aren't true. Part of the problem is Esther and Mordecai are not having this conversation face-to-face. They're having this go-between, and I don't know how long exactly the go-between went, but, you know, Mordecai tells it to the people, and they go talk to Esther, and then Esther tells it to the people, and they go talk to Mordecai. So we're having this conversation in stages instead of face-to-face. So it's, it's, maybe it's hard for Mordecai to kind of tell how she's thinking, what she's thinking, because he can't see it face-to-face. He can't read her body language or her inflection. She's just, he's just getting this third hand. So the first argument is based on personal identity. You will not be safe. To combat if Esther is a coward. The second argument based on national identity. If you don't do this, the Jews will be fine. God will, and of course we think it's God. He doesn't say God. But the implication, right? That deliverance will arise for the Jews from some other place. But not you. If you keep yourself separate from this. And then the third argument is based on religious identity, reminding her of her place in God's story. Who knows whether you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this? And I would suggest that these arguments, this is how God engages with all people. We talked about it a bit this morning in Bible class. The first argument in the New Testament, in all of the sermons in the New Testament, the thing that the the preachers in the New Testament use to try to get people to convert is, first of all, fear. Repent, or you'll go to hell. That's personal, right? Based in very much your personal identity, what will happen to you? Secondly, community. The thing that we might join, this larger group, the church, where we can find community and belonging. Mordecai is reminding her, you belong with the Jews. You've been in the palace for nine years, but you're one of us. You belong with us, and you're part of this people. And they will be saved. Isn't that the argument that we always make? Not we, I shouldn't say we. The argument that I've made on several occasions. The church will thrive. The church will survive. What's up to you is whether or not you'll survive, and you'll be a part of it. Nothing's going to ever destroy the church. All that's up to us is whether we're a part of the thing that God is building. That's the argument that Mordecai makes here. God will save the Jews, but is he going to save you if you don't act? And of course, finally, the third argument here. Ultimately, God has a place for you in the story. It's hard for us to see that sometimes. It's hard for us to see what my part in God's story is, what my part in the church is, what my part in his kingdom is, what does God have in mind for me? It's hard for us to tell, and I would suggest that for Esther, it took nine years to figure that out. 
that she's been in the palace this whole time, but it has not yet become clear until this moment, oh, this is what God expects of me. And in our own lives, it might take years that we remain faithful, we remain steadfast, we remain loyal to God, but our, our purpose, our place may not become apparent for a long time, but we need to keep the course, stay the course for that moment. Esther 4.15. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my young women will fast as you do and I will go to the king though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now, Esther's reply demonstrates the woman she's become in this nine-year period of time. She's not rash. She's thoughtful and considerate. Okay, we're going to plan this. We're going to prepare for this. She recognizes she should not attempt this alone, right? I need your help. I need the rest of the Jews to help me in this. And the instruction to fast is an, another important link to God. Again, implicit. It's not explicit. You have to kind of infer this. But why fast? Fasting, of course, we know. A common thing in Israelite history and really not just Israelite history. This is a thing that people did more in ancient times. The fast was an appeal to God. We see it in Nineveh too, right? The sackcloth and ashes and the fasting and the wailing for three days in, in Nineveh as, as, as Jonah tells them this thing and they all like, oh no, God's going to kill us. We see it in Israel over and over and over. When there's an important decision, when there's a crisis, when there's a problem, Israel fasts to petition to God, God, I need your help. And I care so much about your help that I would rather have your help than eat. She is appealing to the one that put her in the position that she's in. If this is why I'm here, help me. And not only is she going to appeal, but she's going to have all of the Israelites appeal on her behalf. We're all going to fast. We're all going to prepare and then, of course, the last statement then is one of courage. We'll fast, we'll petition, we'll appeal, we'll prepare. I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. But I think there's a recognition in that. I'm going to perish anyway if I don't. That's what Mordecai's argument was, right? You don't do this, you're going to die anyway. Do it. Have the courage to be bold and try to make things better. So this leads us to Esther's gamble. Again, the first event that the story has been building to up until this point. Many of the details in the story up until this point provide context for this moment. We see the kind of person that Ahasuerus is. Impulsive, overreactions, uh, very sort of fickle, very prone to outbursts, right? The, the kind of person that ki the king is. And, and along with that, then, the, the danger that the king represents. Again, almost as a force of nature in the story, if the king doesn't like you, that's the end, right? This is the danger of what's about to happen. We also see the fragility of the queen's position. Why we begin the story with Vashti is to inform the reader that what Esther is about to do is a gamble. Just being queen doesn't protect you. Look what happened to the previous queen. And the previous queen, she just didn't want to dance in front of a bunch of drunk dudes. And that was the end of her queen, or her royalty. So again, the story has been building the context here. The nature of Persian law, which we've seen, of course, in the decree. Of course, we see more in the, in the book of Daniel. But the importance of the law, there's a law here that Ahasuerus is well within his rights to just kill me if I show up and I have been not invited. 
Now, the author has also been spreading throughout the story details to encourage the reader, of course, of Esther's great beauty, of a hazardous relationship with Esther, what he thinks about Esther. He, he loves her. He loves that, that she's his queen. And, of course, how things have worked out for her thus far give us some encouragement that, hey, maybe things will be okay. So, Esther 5, 1 through 4. Esther's first major gamble here. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on the royal throne inside the throne room opposite to the entrance of the palace. When the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given you even to half the kingdom. All right, great, Esther, we did it. Hooray! But this is a little bit of a maddening sequence. Because you'd think, okay, she did it. She's there. He's, he said, give me, I'll give you whatever you want. Okay, Esther asked to save the Jews. Now's the time, Esther. Petition the king. Hey, you got to revoke this decree. Hey, you got to save us. But she doesn't do that. And Esther said, if it pleased the king, let the king and Haman come to t today to a feast that I prepared for the king. Esther's made this huge leap of faith. She's succeeded. The king has made this extreme offer. Maybe he would follow through. Maybe he wouldn't. Now seems like the time to ask, but she doesn't. She, she has this delay. Now, maybe her fear temporarily overshadows her faith. That's a speculation that we could make. But I would suggest it's probably closer to this, that her wisdom, the wisdom she has gained over the last nine years, the knowledge of the workings of the court, the knowledge of the things that go on in the palace, her ability to perceive the king's mood, may be inspiration, although again, that's speculation. Her gamble is not just to approach the king, but to bet that now is not the best time. I should not ask yet. I can make things better. I can ensure a better effect for my appeal if I wait. That is the gamble. Because you'd think this is the time, right? The king says, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. Well, go ahead and ask, Esther. No, I'm not going to ask yet. I'm going to prepare first. I'm going to lay some groundwork. We're going to have a feast with Haman. We're going to have him there so that I can have more of an effect in the appeal. My, the bad guy's going to be in the room with me. I don't know exactly what's going on in Esther's mind, except that ultimately we know this is the right choice, right? We know based on the story that this is going to work out for her. And so as we conclude tonight, I want to consider that a large part of God's providence is shaping people, not just shaping events or circumstances. We think about God's providence in, in our lives and the lives of the people we know. God providing for his people is not just through circumstances and events. It is through making us the kind of people we need to be. Another in Esther's position might have seized this supposed opportunity in front of them and failed, but not Esther. Ultimately, we know her decision is the right one. And it's sort of hard for us to see what caused her to make that decision. Why not just ask now, why have these two feasts? We'll talk about the feasts next time. But God's providence in the book of Esther is not just the circumstance of Esther's life, putting her in position of queen. It's the decade of personal formation that the story glosses over, making Esther into this person that she needs to be at this moment, having this insight, this wisdom, these decisions 
to affect the best outcome. Esther clearly grows and learns, and so God shapes not just Esther's situation, but Esther herself. And so we have to ask, what is God doing in my life? That's important. That's a question of providence. But ask, what is God doing in me? How is he shaping me to react to situations in the way that's going to be the best for my spiritual well-being? God works all things together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. We use that verse when we talk about providence, and rightly so, but God working all things together for good is not just the circumstances of your life, the job you get, the people in your life, the things that, that break one way or another for you. It's in making you who you need to be, which is why it's so important to remain faithful. To think about the providence of God that took a decade to play out in the story of Esther, it's hard for us to see what God is doing, not only now, but in the future, but if I remain faithful and I remain steadfast and I continue to learn and I continue to grow and I continue to worship and I continue to fellowship, God is not just going to work out things in my life circumstance. He's going to make me into who I need to be to respond to situations the way I need to respond. And so the encouragement and invitation as we conclude to become the person that God wants you to be is a long process. In the case of Esther, it took nine years. How long is it going to take for us? Well, it continues for a lifetime, doesn't it? We all start somewhere. Nobody, nobody's perfect when we start. But that's the point. We commit to God, not because I'm who I need to be. I commit to God because I want God to make me who I need to be.